online at wpkn.org. Good morning. Welcome to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willette Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about art and culture in all of its forms. And I'm delighted today to have artist Suzanne Anchor with me. Suzanne, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And hello, everybody. Hello. I want to give a quick intro about who and and what you are. I'm so delighted to have you here with us. Uh, Suzanne is a internationally celebrated visual artist and theorist working at the intersections of art and biological sciences. And her exhibit After Eden is up right now at the Eli Center of Contemporary Art um, at 51 Trumbull Street in New Haven, Connecticut. And that's up until July 17th. And Suzanne, you've shown it an amazing array of museums around the world, including the Smithsonian, the Phillips Collection, um, major biennials and uh, in Korea, in Asia, lots of things in Germany. Um, and you've also done some radio. Yes, I have. I had a radio program when um, when I started the Bio Blurb show. It was on PS1 slash MoMA, and I did 20 episodes of that radio show. That's absolutely I want to get into that a little bit later and see how we can listen to those um, for listeners who might want to follow up on that. Uh, According to the blurb that I read about you, and I I went to see the show, you address climate change and synthetic biology with your work. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you mean by synthetic biology. Well, this is a time when biology has stepped out of the laboratory into Mm -hmm. our daily lives. It's kind of the umbrella under which we live. And because we are able to cut and paste genetic sequences, it's possible to put together combinations of living matter that really broaden the scope of um, singular identities. And what um, what I mean by that is there has been research in for example, inserting a um, firefly into a tobacco plant, which crosses a species barrier between an animal and a vegetable, mm-hmm. and um, and other types of synthetic endeavors mm-hmm. that include um, mice that are essentially used as models for human diseases and organs that are grown in other species, such as pigs. Pigs, yes. 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 No, we're we're definitely um, in that Margaret Atwood territory now. Uh, I've been reading a lot about tomatoes with rat genes in them as well. very interesting. I did have the pleasure of meeting Margaret Atwood. Really? At a um, at a conference in North Carolina a couple of years ago, 
And uh, I was the Friday night speaker, and she was the Saturday night speaker. Mm-hmm. And uh, many of the things that um, that we talked about um, were really what's at the forefront of the way one can edit genetic information and really breed species that are either toxic. You just cut out there. Are you are you there? Uh, I don't know what happened. The if either it's I think it's your phone line. Um, all right, Suzanne, I'm going to call you back. Guests, please hang on. I'm going to call you back. There's something funny with the phone line here, and I'm going to put on a piece of music. This is um, Stevie Wonder, The First Garden. And forgive me, we're having a technical difficulty. Welcome back to Live Culture, and sorry about that glitch. Suzanne, are you there? I'm here. Okay. (laughs) Okay. The ghosts are still in the machine. There was something about talking about... Margaret Atwood's biology yes. that freaked the machine out. I know. <laughs> so you were talking about meeting Margaret Atwood and the sort of connection between your work and the idea of being able to kind of cut and paste elements into life. Um, yes, yes, and there you know several new technologies that are being employed by scientists. One is called a gene drive 
which essentially reduces populations of species that are thought to be overrun or harmful, such as rats. Mm-hmm. Um, and another is the technology called CRISPR, which has the ability to uh, essentially cut out or add different gene sequences, even in human embryos. Mm. Now, this was tried in China Mm -hmm. on some twins who might have inherited HIV, and the scientist in question decided that he would try this without proper ethical approval and ended up in jail. So um, it raises the question about what it means to be human, Mm -hmm. and if we could do something, should we do something? Right. So that's where we are now. It it all has this sort of what could possibly go wrong feeling about it. Um, (laughs) Well, yeah. And I understand the urge to do things to, you know, presumably help people, but we all know it can be used in, in so many different ways. The idea of us deciding which species are uh, useful or not useful or helpful or not helpful or, or who who there is too many of um, seems disturbing also. It's very disturbing. It's kind of uh, new eugenics, actually, mm-hmm. when this was a program to get rid of the undesirable through mm. sterilization, yeah. even without consent. And um, I think what we need to remember is that living systems are interconnected ecologies and where we might think one area is not beneficial or useful, within the bigger picture, there may be a different perspective. That's right. So, That's right. Um, we don't so, know. We don't know. Yeah. And and honestly, it's not our job to to remake everything to serve ourselves. Yeah. It's The world does not exist just for us. No, it does not. And, you know... Um, the the question of the of humanity's place in the living world is one that we are grappling with now due to some of the events that have been happening since mm-hmm. um, the birth of agriculture or since the atomic explosion, uh, wherever you want to put that date that the man-made destruction of the planet uh, is upon us and has had uh, numerous consequences that uh, we are going to have to learn to adapt to. Yes, we seem to be moving very slowly and we've had plenty of chances to do something about it. it's, it's, of course, only going to affect the most vulnerable people first and the most vulnerable species first. Um, it's back to the exhibit. Um, yes. At the Eli, because people are probably wondering, how does this, how does this work with the visual art? So mm-hmm. in the exhibit, you have a really broad spectrum of kinds of art. You've got uh, photographs, collages, videos, 
installations, sculptures, well, sculptures, I guess I would say, um, some prints. You work across a broad swath of mediums, and much of the imagery comes from things in your garden. Is that correct? Well, the the pieces entitled After Nature, after Eden, mm-hmm. rather, um, which are collages, and some of them are rephotographed and blown up to a much larger scale. Mm-hmm. Um, everything in that series has to do with living forms being recombined or cut and pasted mm-hmm. or disappearing. And everything in those pieces are things that I grew. So there is nothing in those images that uh, I have not put my hands on. And um, I think in the future, as climate change kind of creeps up in its numerical value, Uh, humans are going to have to look at seasonal changes in different ways. Mm -hmm. And a good example of that is what's happening in Greenland, which because of the melting of the permafrost, they are now able to grow strawberries in Greenland. And this is a very uh, frightening situation. Uh, because, again, the release of carbon dioxide from the permafrost. That's one of the things that I'm quite anxious about, yes. (laughs) Yes, affects everyone. And um, there are also minerals Mm. that could never be extracted because of the frozen earth that are now going to create new industrial complexes in a continent that has been rather pristine for quite a while. I need some good news. Um, so in in the images of the collages, you say that everything has been touched by you, and you're basically talking, you're not talking about nature, it's more agriculture and cultivation. It's the cultivation of something that we once thought of as nature. Um, can you talk well, about that? It's the cultivation of the living world. Mm -hmm. And of course I am doing it symbolically uh, because I am an artist and Mm -hmm. artists work with symbols. But, um, you know, horticulture is a prime example that has existed through the ages in which different forms of unique species have been uh, put together so that they become the dominant form. Um, and in these, in these collages, one can see um, really the beauty of the natural world and its ability to um, rebound in some ways. Um, nevertheless, um, the hardships of climate change. Right. Nature is resilient. It really, it really is. And, and I want to say that the, the pieces are quite beautiful. They're very colorful and there's a variety of textures and surfaces that really draw you in into this whole little circular world of the Petri dish. I want to also say 
that you are listening to WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming online at WPKN.org. We broadcast out of beautiful Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I am Martha Willett-Lewis, and this is Live Culture, a monthly conversation about art. And I am delighted to be in conversation with Suzanne Anker, whose exhibit After Eden is up right now at the Eli Center of Contemporary Art and is free and open to the public until July 17th. And we are discussing the exhibit and her work. Um, so your pieces, the the collages and then the re, re-photographed collages, which appear as large images uh, on the walls, and then you've also got... 3D printed and painted. I don't even know exactly how they're constructed, but a, a beautiful sort of vitrine of of what look like petri dishes of of biological material. Yes, well, that's very um, a very kind of unique methodology, and I'll sort of go back to the data from the images that are on the wall mm-hmm. called Vanitas in a Petri Dish. And Vanitas is a Dutch still-life genre mm-hmm. that came into the fore during the Dutch Golden Age in which great wealth was, um, was being acquired by the mercantile class uh, as well as a sort of uh, religious kind of moral reckoning about that. And the Vanitas represented the passage of time and the inevitability of death, since everything has an expiration date, And the message was to uh, reach towards a a spiritual life as well as a material life as being part of the human condition. So in in these pieces, I included the Petri dish because Mm -hmm. the Petri dish, too, is a cultural icon. It is the space in which things that are hidden emerge. And what oh, that's I have lovely. Put, I like that. What I have put in the Petri dishes are objects from the natural world, mm-hmm. both dead and alive, as well as manufactured objects, because manufactured objects now take their cue from the natural world in terms of color and um, shape and texture sure. Design, uh, as, yeah. a, as a second nature. So um, They're also appearing more and more in the natu- natural world in terms of microplastics appearing and, and they're everywhere in the ocean, they're inside our bodies and in animal bodies. I, well, you I know. agree. I think it's now a spectrum mm-hmm. that really is where you want to put the marker between nature and culture because they have been osmotically connected for a long time and this membrane is permeable. Mm -hmm. You know, we eat the equivalent of a credit card, a plastic credit card, um, very regularly because of the microplastics. And, um, And I think that the Vanitas pieces with the Petri dish um, really is a wake-up call to life in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and what I've done with those 
the data from those digital prints is put them through a 3D program. And uh, by creating a, um, a Z-axis, I was able to convert two-dimensional images into three-dimensional images. Mm -hmm. And uh, those sculptures, which are printed on a rapid prototype printer, are printed one layer at a time, like a sedimentary rock. There's mm -hmm. no mold. Uh, uh, I don't touch anything. Right. I make sculpture without touching anything in this set of work. And they appear to be micro-landscapes. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what's important to look at in terms of bio-art is its relationship to art history, because the vanitas uh, go back to a genre in painting, uh, the still life, and the, um, the, the remote sensing works go back to the genre of landscape also an art historical genre. Mm -hmm. So, but with different messages this time. They're, they're incredibly tactile. I really wanted to touch them and it's probably good that you had them under a glass case. <laughs> um, the large, the large Petri dish photographs mm -hmm. really also reminded me of, uh, I've seen this in illuminated paintings quite a bit. Um, there's this whole sort of set of pictures of God, the architect, which usually involves a compass, and then mm -hmm. the, ra the round slice of the earth um, with the heavens kind of around it in, as mm -hmm. a kind of target almost. And it looked a little bit like that. And there's something about the circular form that invites thinking about ecosystems anyway. The, there is no way of separating one thing from another. This um, is correct, and also the uh, cycle of life, mm -hmm. um, and also uh, a mandala, which yeah. again yeah. is another symbol of spirituality. More than that, the mandala is actually the map of of where we are and where we could be. Right, like it's mm -hmm. it's here now, but it's also the heavens and beyond. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was. I wanted to go back to the this in relationship to your garden and what you grow because there's something really kind of compelling. I, Monet did it in a much more sort of simple way. Um, mm -hmm. He didn't just want to paint landscapes. He created Giverny so that he could create his landscape and then make images from that. And it, there was a kind of back and forth. Uh, Correct. And um, Darwin used his garden quite extensively for experiments and did things to his plants to observe mm -hmm. them. And I'm sure countless other people who I'm not thinking about right now do that. But there's something really intriguing about an artist going in and making an environment. Um, you're in control of what you're putting where and which things you allow to stay and which things you're removing. Um, but then there's other things that you presumably can't control there. Uh, I, I agree. And, and I think it's, it's, it is some of the results have astonished me in the sense that they look like I live in the tropics <laughs> when, when in fact I don't. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and I would bring together, you know, 
um, various species. Most gardens contain various species that have migrated into um, into the trade of plants so that they are not native necessarily um, or they don't grow naturally in one set of climate conditions. No, so, sometimes with uh, disastrous results. That's correct. You know, they escape. Um, they escape, and <laughs> and and they also they also represent identity. That you know, most states and most countries have a national flower oh, yeah. or national tree, etc. And uh, here in this situation, um, if one goes back and looks at the roots, meaning the migratory practices of some of these plants, which we use every day in in um, in our country, even the tulip, for example. Mm. Um, you know, refers back to tulip mania um, in the Netherlands. So, um, so that sort of backstory of the history of these plants um, is also another component um, of the work because they represent um, migration patterns of human beings mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. Okay. So um, plunder and discovery and colonization all are in there. There's that both is the correct. joyful and the negative. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think of the act of gardening is a sort of he- healing and creative act anyway. Mm-hmm. And touching soil, apparently there's enzymes in the soil and, and it sets off all kinds of good hormones in your brain. Um, it's a living substance. It's it is. not dirt, okay? I, yes. <laughs> you're, you're talking to, about a topic that's dear to my heart. I worked mm-hmm. on a project with another artist named Marion Bellinger called The Underneath that was all about the living nature of soil, and it's something that I keep kind of coming back to, the fact that we call this stuff dirt um, and act as if it's something to be taken for granted. Uh, but there's something about... So did you start off gardening long before you started making art or did you start making art in relation to your garden? Was this a kind of programmatic decision or was it something that happened organically? Well, what's interesting is as a child, I grew up in an apartment building Mm -hmm. and so there really was no room to have a garden, okay? Mm -hmm. But in the back of my apartment building was an empty lot that contained all sorts of creatures and weeds and um, other things that um, interested me. And I would go into this empty lot and um, essentially find caterpillars and milkweed and bring them back to my apartment to hatch monarch butterflies. Oh. So so (laughs) the idea of a weed, which I have in my garden here, Mm -hmm. uh, is is what's called a plant in the wrong place, okay? And uh, what thrills me most 
in my garden is when certain seeds uh, create what are called volunteer plants. I love the volunteer plants, yes. That they just appear as if they are a gift. And um, so gardening really is something I didn't grow up with uh, very early, but managed to um, to learn about when actually I moved to New Haven. So mm. okay, all <laughs> right. Did you have a garden? Did you have right? a garden in New Haven? I had a garden in New Haven. I had a very large garden in New Haven. And I grew lots of uh, vegetables and flowers. And uh, again, the thrill of finding a giant zucchini Mm -hmm. or um, um, some other uh, melon that perhaps was unaccounted for. Mm -hmm. Surprises. Yeah, surprises. And using ladybugs Mm -hmm. as um, kind of an organic... uh, way to keep the things fresh it it is really amazing how quickly things grow as well um i'm always surprised by that and that's probably i have a city background as well so my my uh, familiarity (laughs) with gardens is is um recent and not 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 extensive so one of the things that i wanted to talk about you were talking about the way that the data you 3d printed the data Mm -hmm. um and i you run the BioArt Lab um, mm-hmm. at SVA's Fine Art Department, where mm-hmm. you were also the chair. And the BioArt Lab is, can you talk a little bit about, is that, has that allowed you further access to technology, or is that something that you brought into it yourself before? You and, know, I, yeah. Actually, uh, the BioArt Lab is part of the bigger complex of the Fine Arts Department. Mm-hmm. And I put together a 54,000 square foot building that wow. had every new technology from video mapping to computer generated sculpture to um, digital sewing. Um, and then, of course, it needed a bioart lab because biology is technology and technology is biology. Mm-hmm. So we're one of the uh, first fine arts departments to really engage with biology as a medium mm-hmm. in art. And um, it's become a very popular uh, course and m- probably because people are now more interested not only in climate change, but the anxieties brought on by COVID and how these uh, vaccines were able to be made because of the uh, prior work with RNA viruses. And... um, so it's sort of a complete package that includes painting and drawing, et cetera, but all new technologies. And mm-hmm. my idea was to bridge the gap between the handmade and the technological, because that's our future. It is. You know, I think one of the things that when I was imagining building such a place, the thing that seems really daunting to me, and it's the thing that I find the most frustrating about technology, is that there's a learning curve to 
figuring out how the, the devices work. Absolutely. Uh, and then there's a very short period of time where that device is cutting edge and then it shifts and it's constantly that, shifting. That, that, and that, that beco- is correct. <laughs> and it becomes incredibly expensive and time consuming. And I find myself feeling like I'm working for the machine. Well, the machine works for you, too. Oh, I know it does. I know it's an attitude problem. (laughs) If you look at the remote sensing pieces, which Mm -hmm. are the little sculptures made by the machine, Mm -hmm. the machine taught me about the edges of sculpture and how before working with the machine, my edges of my sculpture were always smooth and of one color, etc., But the machine reading the data in the way it did now created a uh, hierarchy of of heights and of colors. And and so I learned from the machine. And, of course, the machine learns from me, too. But this is the area we're now moving forward with AI, um, et cetera, in how there's this um, this crossover between human learning and machine learning. So the colored pieces that are in the vitrines, mm-hmm. uh, I had somehow understood that they were hand-painted. Well, there are hand-painted after they're okay. printed. Okay, they're okay. printed in color, but the color palette is not archival. So uh. in order to make these pieces um, fully saturated over time, then, um, then they are hand-painted with acrylic paints and, and dyes that are color-fast. Okay. So that's, that's something that we as artists obsess about, you know, it's, uh, getting the thing so that it's going to actually stay looking the way it does when you make it. Uh, I know. And which this is, is the problem. Impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> it's the problem with technology. I mean, if we go back to the origins of video art in the 60s and 70s, um, all of that work that was produced had to be now transferred mm-hmm. into um, different kinds of um, of digital form because they no longer make those machines, et cetera, et cetera. And we all and, know that that's going to be like a game of telephone where there's yep. attrition, each <laughs> like little bits of loss each time, dust, hair. It's yeah, <laughs> and and it changes. I mean, this even goes back to cleaning the Sistine Chapel. Oh, and, yeah, and whether was... those colors are true to what Michelangelo wanted, um, or did they or... wipe off a layer that he put on afterwards? That's right. <laughs> Which seems obviously the answer is yes. I want to say that you are listening to Live Culture. I'm your host, Martha Willette Lewis. Live Culture is a monthly program about art. And I am in conversation with artist Suzanne Anker today, whose exhibit After Eden is up right now at the Eli Center of Contemporary Art at 51 Trumbull Street in New Haven, Connecticut. And this is, of course, WPKN 89.5 FM and streaming at WPKN.org. And we broadcast out of beautiful downtown Bridgeport. Um, So, Suzanne, one of the things that your work does 
structurally you you have um, what I would call sort of arrays of things a lot of times in the mm-hmm. in the exhibits. You've got things, um, the Petri dishes are, or the 3D printed pieces mm-hmm. are in a vitrine kind of at various heights. Um, you mm-hmm. have other pieces where there's an array of objects that are related to each other on transparent platforms. Um, mm-hmm. And most particularly relevant to current events, one of the things I was thinking about Today was, of course, what happened yesterday with the Supreme Court. Um, and it's Absolutely. Been, it's been hard to focus on anything else, I have to say. Um, but you have a piece that ha- features kind of embryos and the skeletons and fossils of things. Correct. And it is called The Carbon Collision of the Diamond Mind, which I find such a beautiful title. Um, well, that piece are the ceramic sculptures. They're not the embryos. I got it wrong. Oops. Yes. Okay. Uh, The piece with the embryos is called Origins and Futures. And that is is about the origin of life, Mm -hmm. which is still unknown. Life has not been able to be created in the lab, so to speak. And one of the theories about the origin of life was that a um, primitive RNA molecule learned how to replicate itself by taking over the lattice structure of a crystal. In these, okay, in these (laughs) deep heat vents in which pyrite which is yeah. on that piece as right. well and pyrite uh, people know as fool's gold it's a that is beautiful correct. sparkling multifaceted yes. surface yes so the question is are we selling our origins for futures which is a term used in the stock market um which essentially is fool's gold and um, origins and futures, how are we now looking at life forms? And um, what are the conditions under which they will be um, given force? Now, this whole argument that life begins at conception um, is not provable. No. And essentially it's life in potentia. Okay? And there is nothing in the constitution or anywhere else about life in potentia. Well and um honestly and be- I don't believe that this ruling actually has to do with that question. Uh, I don't I, either. I think it's. I think that's just a red herring. That's just an excuse. I agree with you. Since the same people believe in the death penalty. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but the issue of of a woman's body and where life begins, and what rights one has in determining um, their own body is uh, a major issue here for women, and I hope we will all organize and get this overturned, because this is a disaster. 
Absolutely. And as over 50% of the population, I feel like we have the right to expect uh, respect for our own choices. And we have the right to expect to live in a place that has a separation between church and state. Absolutely correct. And, And I think that your comment that it's not about life and potential. Could you explain a little bit more about that? I think that there, you know, like you said, if you believe in the death penalty or you think it's okay to send people off to war, um, then it seems hard to believe that you can really start saying that it only has to do with a very, very technical and hard to answer process that goes on right like there's i've seen films of i saw a remarkable film i believe i'm pulling this out of my head it was a while ago and i believe it was a documentary in france that showed um the sperm hitting the egg and then the egg you know it, it developing over time and it was rather amazing watching a spine grow and then it divides and that's the Mm -hmm. space that will become eyes and a brain and then the really amazing part was that they actually filmed the electric spark Mm -hmm. Um, and the my feeling is that life must be the electric spark Um, and but you know how much how how alive that is then means do we then say that you can't eat things that are alive like if mm-hmm. we really love things that are alive um we can't eat lettuce we can't eat we can't eat shrimp we can't eat anything um you know if if this group really feels that that life is the thing that we ought to be preserving at all costs then we're in in a serious bind well, it's totally hypocritical. Of course because it is. It's ridiculous. The Supreme Court next week is going to take up uh, climate change, mm-hmm. okay? And let's see how much they care about right. life in the environmental uh, age. And um, I would say that it's going to be a degradation of the environment the same way there's been a degradation of women. Mm-hmm. So um, this it is deep, is, does feel deeply disrespectful, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It really does. And uh, and I think I think you know there there are many questions around developing a new life. Okay, and what they mean, and um, and I think that these many of these questions are unanswerable. And you know, a new life is is a new life at some point when it is viable as its own. At whatever point that is, is is a object of wonder that that a sperm and an egg could then go on to create a human being. But um, but before it's viable, it's a protoplasmic mass. Yes. And, um, and essentially, without 
the social comforts of either government assistance or family help or uh, family leave than um, than giving birth to what was once this protoplasmic mass and then have no care for it is equally absurd. Hey. I know. Well, it really, if everybody cares so much about children, then why, why aren't our social services better? You know, why are why are they busy trying to cut school lunches? Anyway, that goes somewhat, you know, it's just... Um, it goes beyond the, the scope of what I can even talk about at this point. I'm just so gobsmacked by the whole thing. And I shouldn't I be. Know. I shouldn't be. But I really, so your piece really hit home to me yesterday because mm-hmm. I was looking at the show and looking mm-hmm. at these embryonic forms, which look mm-hmm. to be ceramic. Uh, um, they're or? actually, they're rapid prototype as okay. well. They're plaster and resin. Plaster, it's, that gives it that nice surface. They have a nice yeah. surface. And they were made in 2004 mm-hmm. because um, reproductive technologies are very advanced right now, and the acronym for them is ART. A-R-T, <laughs> Assisted Reproductive Technology. <laughs> okay. And, um, and I have been sort of part of a conference that has taken place for three years in Cambridge in the UK at mm-hmm. the University of Cambridge where the first test tube baby was made. And I was one of two artists. There were veterinarians, there were scientists, there were doctors, there were sociologists, anthropologists, etc., sort of discussing the different advances in assisted reproductive technologies. And I was introduced to a new technology called an embryoscope, in which the sperm and egg are put into a Petri dish and then form a zygote. And you can take as many as, I don't know, six Petri dishes at one time and put it into the embryoscope and watch it develop over 14 days or so to see which embryos are viable for insertion into the mother's womb. Uh, Before this scope, they would just look at the development and they would pick actually the most beautiful ones, which were not necessarily the most viable ones. Interesting. So uh, I had asked one of the scientists Um, at the conference whether he thought that this is the future of pregnancy and he said yes and he said that sex will just be for enjoyment but that this kind of neo-eugenics will be the future so we're talking about brave new world here that's really you know I don't I'm I don't have any children, so confession. Um, but if I did, I would want it to be organic, and I would want the surprise and and the imperfections that come with, you know, like there are things that I have in my that I don't like about my mind and my own 
failings as a as a being, um, but I don't think I would ask ever to have them removed. Um, no, no. <laughs> okay. I've I've um, always enjoyed being a flawed being, and I would. <laughs> I, and if I were going to bring somebody into the world, I would want them to be flawed too, with the flaws of hopefully the person that I was in love with. Um, you know. Well, I have a, one daughter and one granddaughter, mm-hmm. and um, have gone through the experience of giving birth. And um, and I sort of like to relate this to the philosopher Jürgen Habermas, mm-hmm. German philosopher who mm-hmm. wrote a book about um, human nature. And what we think we might want for our children may not be what they want. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think in 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 that sense, it's very important that we let nature take its course. Mm-hmm. And um, and and you know it turns out uh, the way it turns out. If it's really going to be terrible um, um, in, or non-viable, that's another story. But um, but I think you know I I, I think that the um, the idea of chance is part of the human condition, and recognizing chance is what both artists and scientists do. I was just and, going to say that artists love chance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and so do scientists. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alexander Fleming who is the father of penicillin, discovered penicillin by accident. Mm -hmm. You know, he was known to have a very dirty laboratory, and Mm -hmm. he had some open Petri dishes Mm -hmm. with staphylococcus in them and had a window open next to it, and he went away for the weekend. He came back, and he saw that there was this fungal ring around the staphylococcus that uh, caused it to disappear. So, hence, penicillin. Mm-hmm. So, um, right. very, 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 very interesting. And there have been many cases like this. Similarly, that's the origin story for uh, Roquefort, for blue cheese. The myth, uh-huh. the myth is that a shepherd... Uh, was sitting in a cave, uh, getting some cool air uh, while watching his flock, and something happened, and he left his bread sitting on top of some sort of flask of of milk. Um, and when he came back, the uh, the milk had he discovered a long time later a rotted milk, uh, which turned <laughs> out to be the Roquefort cheese. My favorite. The, I know my favorite too. I just love it. And the liveness of cheese is part of what it makes it special in France, at least. You know, it's um, correct. The liveness and the deadness of our cheese is something that makes me very sad. Um, Suzanne, we have we have about five minutes left, so mm-hmm. I kind of wanted to have you talk to me a little bit about your radio because I love the fact that you work in sound as well, and and. On top of that, I also am really intrigued by how many different kinds of materials you use. And I'm wondering if you always did that um, and whether that was encouraged in art school or whether that's just something that developed over time. Well, that developed over time, particularly because I sort of start out with an idea Mm 
and then I tried to find a material that matches it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that lots of artists will respond to. I know I do this, and, mm-hmm. and I feel like this is something more now, but maybe not when I went to school. Yeah, I think in school, school in art, well, I went to liberal arts um college, but I majored in art, and I had some very um, unique instructors who were very steeped in abstract paintings, such as Ed Reinhardt, for example. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that at that time, it was the academy. You had to choose in painting in particular between representation or abstraction. Um, And at this point in time, it's a much more open field. And, um, And I think there is a plurality of issues that artists work with that range from popular culture to gender studies to environmental concerns to the history of abstraction it's etc and um and that in finding one's own voice i think one has much more freedom at this point in mm-hmm. art um, the radio program yeah. kind of came to me um, through. I had just published the my my first book with the late sociologist of science uh, Dorothy Nelkin called "The Molecular Gaze: Art in the Genetic Age," and um, I was asked by the person who was in charge of the MoMA PS1 radio Mm -hmm. if I wanted to talk about it and uh, talk about the book. I said, well, the book is very complicated. Maybe we should make a radio show of it. Okay, And that's how I proceeded with inviting two or three guests at one time and having a different kind of concept uh, or area to discuss. And we've had uh, many interesting people on on board uh, to really talk about um, issues in art and biology. Is it, uh, can I find it online? If you look for the bio blurb show, okay. you should be able to find it. We're going to have to wrap it up. So I'm going to look for that and put it on the link, which will be. So after this show finishes, it will be available on archive for two weeks and then it will be made onto a podcast and it will be on the live culture um SoundCloud podcast page and I have to close up really quickly. Suzanne Anchor, it has been a delight to talk to you. Thank you for being on Live Culture and we will be back again in a month. Suzanne, your show uh, After Eden is up now at the Eli Center of Contemporary Art at 51 Trumbull Street until uh, July 17th. So thank you so much. Sorry thank about you the, for inviting me. <laughs> sorry about the rushed goodbye. Take no care. problem. Bye-bye. <laughs> Support comes from the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, happening this year in New Haven, now through June 26th. 
This annual multicultural and multi-genre event features music, fashion and drag, dance, theatre, comedy, lectures and workshops, with the majority of the events free. More info at artidea.org. Support for WPKN comes from Live Nation, presenting Phil Lesh and Friends Friday, July 1st at the Hartford Healthcare Amphitheater in Bridgeport. Tickets available at livenation.com. I'm Steve DiCostanzo, General Manager of WPKN, and our summer gala is almost here. It's going to be this Saturday, June 25th, at the Bijou Theater in Bridgeport. This special event features the world premiere screening of the WPKN full-length documentary film, The Greatest Radio Station in the World. Filmmaker Cobb Carlson will join us after the film for a Q&A session. Doors open at 6 p.m. with tours of WPKN and the Bijou. Food will be provided by Miss Thelma's Soul Food Restaurant. Also, Prosecco drinks from Mianetto, wine from Fountainhead Wines, beer from Berlinetta Brewing, and we'd also like to thank our corporate sponsor, Amadex. The film will screen at 7 p.m. Tickets are limited, but there are a few left. And now, thanks to a gift, our gala tickets have been reduced to $89.50 per ticket. This is a once-in-a-lifetime event, and we know our longtime fans and new listeners alike will find many special moments at our WPKN Summer Gala. Hope to see you this Saturday. On the next Alternative Radio, tune in to hear Michael Parenti on imperialism. That's Alternative Radio, Monday mornings at 6 on WPKN, 89.5 FM, Independent Community Radio. Hello, this is Kevin Gallagher, host of Digging in the Dirt. Next Monday, the 27th at 5 p.m., my guest will be Arthur Davis, a director and researcher at the Rich Earth Institute in Brattleboro, Vermont. The Institute has a urine nutrient reclamation program. Their slogan is fertilizer from urine, clean rivers, sustainable farms. Tune in next Monday at 5 p.m. when Digging in the Dirt digs a little deeper into using human urine as fertilizer. Only here on listener-supported WPKN. Hi, I am Fernando Morales, Executive Director of Southwestern Area Health Education Center in Shelton, Connecticut. Our goal is to improve health equity in our communities by assisting in creating an inclusive and accessible health care system. In the past two years, COVID-19 has impacted our lives in so many ways. And while it may seem the worst is behind us, we still have a long way to go. There are few easy ways to stay safe. Wash your hands frequently and wear a mask. If you are experiencing any COVID-19 symptoms, such as fever, dry cough, loss of smell or taste, please stay quarantined and get tested. Stay quarantined and get tested. Don't hesitate to have a conversation with your healthcare professional to get the answers that you need to make the best decisions for yourself. This is the best way to protect yourself, friends, loved ones, and your community. The The FDA has approved multiple vaccines to help protect yourself and your community from the spread of COVID-19. If you have any questions about the vaccine or need help finding where to get vaccinated, we are here to help you. The Southwestern Area Health Education Center in Shelton is available to answer your questions at at 203-372-5503. That's 203-372-5503. 
0-3. We want to help. We want to make a difference. Together, we can crush COVID. <laughs> so, I said to her, you know, it's it's like like apples and oranges, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other, and what's wrong? Oh, no. What do you think it is? Wait, wait, wait a minute. Come here. Look, I think it's I think it's your radio, your car radio. Look, let me change your radio station to 89.5 FM WPKN in Bridgeport. Yeah. Go ahead, try it now. See what happens. Go ahead. <laughs> See? 